Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Dr. James Richardson. James is an expert in exponential growth in the consumer sector and author of Ramping Your Brand. At his company, Premium Growth Solutions, he works with fast-growing emerging brands such as Once Upon a Farm, Dr. Squatch Soap, June Shine Hard Kombucha, and Proven Skincare. Thanks so much for joining me today, James. Thanks for having me, Diane. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to spend some time talking about exponential growth. And I would love it if you would explain to the listeners what exponential growth is, please. Sure. So basically, it's growth where the rate of growth annually keeps changing. (laughs) So um, it's not fixed. Uh, visually, you may recognize it uh, in a curve that you might see at a skateboard park. And that's a curve that's called a quarter pipe ramp, um, where it starts off really shallow and then suddenly gets really steep, right? When it hits the wall of the the, the bowl. And that's for skateboarders, that's either a vert wall or, or a quarter pipe ramp. Very difficult to go up those. (laughs) <laughs> it's very yeah, diff- it's it's very it, it's very easy to get going. <laughs> Most people fall on their butt um, uh, because you have to learn how to balance when you start heading nearly vertically. Now, most people are not skateboarders listening to this, so you understand. <laughs> ep- sorry, I had the you, you understand exponential growth when you started investing in the stock market. Ah. because hopefully someone sat you down or you went on the Google Net. Uh, and learned about the fact that there's something called a compound interest rate, right? So basically, every month you're in the market, um, the say you have a you have a principal balance, and there's an interest rate that's accruing on an annualized uh-huh. basis or a monthly basis, however you want to calculate. It's actually a daily basis, and as long as that's positive, you keep making more and more money, and your balance actually grows. Um, and if that interest rate changes, uh, you can suddenly, like many of us saw in the last 12 months, suddenly wake up one day and log in and you've made a gobsmack amount of money doing nothing. Yeah. So that's passive income via exponential growth when the return on your investment capital is accelerating very quickly. So I work with folks who are in consumer packaged goods and they're Exponential growth is very hard to get, but it keeps happening. And so I wrote a book about it because I wanted to figure out how to, how to make this, how to, how to share a mental model for pursuing this more rationally than just sort of praying. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, is not a strategy. 
No, not really. But the um, the final thing I'd say about ex- exponential growth definitionally, and it's probably the most important, is that when you run a business according to an exponential growth strategy, and yes, you can sort of plot this out, the scale of your business is going to stay really small in the first several years. And so it will appear to others that you're failing. <laughs> yeah. um, it's sort of like the people the skateboarder who's on the lower part of that quarter pipe ramp, you know, that's not that challenging. Yeah. If you, if you can roll on a skateboard, you can make it up that because the incline's low. What happens is this, the, all the money gets created at the back half of the curve and it gets created amazingly fast. So fast that people go from, Oh, it's so sad. I know. Oh yeah. It's business to, Oh my God, how do I get a piece? <laughs> Literally in year, in a matter of like a year or two, it'll happen that fast. Wow. Uh, and it's, so it's a great strategy if you're, you're like my clients, you're David versus the Frito-Lay Goliath. Right. Who just mocks you uh, every day when they wake up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whether they mean or not, but they're doing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, what else can they do? So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a great strategy if you are doing something relatively innovative that right now most people would look at and go, yeah, I don't, I don't want to drink kombucha. It tastes like uh, someone yeah. liquefied Sour Patch. Yeah. Like, I don't want to drink that. Right. So, <laughs> it's not interesting. Yeah. Um, but tomorrow, or maybe in a few years, it might be something that's now really, really cool. And so if you can be the, one of the leaders in doing something like that in the market, using exponential growth, what happens is that you, you bring the thing to the mass market and you can own it. And that's sort of what Kindbar did about 10 years ago. Okay. All right. So explain that if you would, what, what did they do or how did they do it? So they picked a very simple idea, which is why can't we have a protein bar that doesn't look like it came out of a chemical factory? Yeah. Like when I open it up, instead of this pressed slab of whatever, I can actually see things that might be in my kitchen, like an almond, (laughs) a raisin, God forbid. (laughs) And if I flip it over, oh, that looks like a chocolate bar. This all makes sense to me. (laughs) I know what I'm eating. Yes. And it was a very simple, conceptually like, duh. Um, But no one in the US, Diane, could make a kind bar in 2004 when he started. There wasn't a single manufacturing facility that could do it. Really? Nope. So he had to figure that out. Uh, and it wasn't easy. And there were problems. Uh, and several years in, they started to get traction at Whole Foods and other elite retailers. They were selling for like today, what would be three fifty dollars a bar. So <laughs> it was not for the Walmart crowd. But, right. you know they had to figure out how to manufacture and commercialize this thing that no one could make. And so they had to go do it. And this created a barrier to scaling, right? It created a, what I call a, um, a natural uh, governor on the engine of growth, Mm. like a golf cart, Mm -hmm. which is smart when you are trying to build a brand the way that I talk about in my book, ramping your brand, because in the beginning, you got to make sure that you actually have something that creates what I call um, habitual consuming fans. These are people who 
they try you, they quickly convert to regular usage, and they can, and they actually increase their rate of consumption over time. They start having, you know, it goes from like one bar a week to three bars a week to every day. You know, and and they're going from buying two bars at the grocery store to buying a case. Mm. So that journey of consumption rate is sort of like your compound industry in your in your mutual fund. So if you can get that, if you can create a brand and a product experience that causes that behavior to happen, every person you recruit, you add that to your principal balance, but they're actually going to go increase their rate of consumption. So now you have the mathematical engine of exponential growth. And all you need, all you need is 10 or 15% of the people who have it uh, to turn into those super heavy users. Oh. And what happens in a small business, if you can get that to happen, even at a higher rate, like 30% in the first couple of years, you get this explosive amount of sales with zero marketing or almost no marketing expense. And it's literally coming out of the design. And this is what they found that kind bar was that, and they did do, they did do marketing because they did something called field marketing, which is a combination of showing up at events and literally handing out samples to something more exotic, which was um, inserting the brand as sort of a lifestyle badge in what was then the rapidly growing yoga studio network in urban America. So they recruited oh. yoga teachers as their brand ambassadors. Ah. And they turned this thing into a super elite wellness brand with very affluent folks who didn't care that it was the equivalent today of 350 a bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that much in absolute dollars, but today that's what it would have been. Right. <laughs> so, you know, this was not going to be your average Joe at Kroger buying this thing on a yeah. walk. So they found the right people who would value this notion of, oh, yeah, I want food. I, I know what's in it. Yeah. I'm sick and tired of uh, always having to have a processed food. Yeah. And it was a small group of people who were going to care the most about that. But, you know, a yoga person, a yoga devotee would be a good guess, right? Yeah. So they were right. Uh, and they used field marketing to basically, by handing out relatively low cost samples, they would generate an insane conversion rate. So people would have a, they'd go, you know, people would be in like a 10K and there'd be a booth and they'd get a kind bar. And then they'd literally be like, wow, that's really good. And then mm. they'd go buy, they'd go buy three the next day. And it just kept happening. And so they refined this playbook, uh, which was very sampling driven and just leaned into it. Uh-huh. And they did it in a target, very targeted way initially because they didn't have a lot of money. But that targeting actually was smart because it makes you think about, well, who can I find that'll become that case pack right. user? Who's going to convert? Right. Like, who's going to become a, like a psycho convert? <laughs> and once you develop that aptitude, uh, you can start to create a playbook that, and then you take to other cities and it becomes like a military campaign, yeah, mark, right. a, a soft, gentle military yeah. campaign, <laughs> nonviolent aggression, right. where yeah. you, you basically keep executing the playbook, keep inserting yourself in the same communities. So they got really good at that. And it's very, very cash efficient. 
when you do what I'm just talking about, because you focus yeah. on, you focus on growing your, in growing your uh, rate of consumption at the consumer level, not mm. simply how many people can I get to try it? That's important too. But if you do both, you get unbelievably fast exponential growth. Um, and what you do is you can contain the scale of it by not, by containing distribution. And what, yeah. it, what it creates is, a, it's sort of like having a, an investment portfolio in which you've got, you know, rather than having a whole bunch of mediocre funds that all do eh, 8% net per year, you've got, you know, three funds and two of them are doing 25%. You know, that's a better portfolio. Yes. Fewer funds, much better chosen. Right. For the world market dynamics. Now, if you're good at mutual fund research, you know, this isn't hard to figure out. It's basically the tech-driven funds. <laughs> it's just, those are the guys that are growing crazy. Um, if you were to somehow have all your money in like packaged food the last 20 years, you didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> uh-huh. Those stocks don't grow. But yeah. you know, the mutual fund and everything was set up to allow the amateur to get access to that kind of cleverness. Exactly. You know, but what my clients do is they go create, and in Kindbar's case, um, they started in New York, the tri-state area, and they just built this thing. There's another case that's very similar, uh, vitamin water, it's older. They created um, an eight-figure business just in the greater LA area by driving around town in the early 2000s in what they called hydrology vans. They were like branded vitamin water hydrology van. And they had like beer taps on the outside and you would, they would literally give you samples. They would hand you cups of fresh quote unquote vitamin water right out of this van. And they would just whoop it up with attractive people. You know, they do. Yeah. And they just create a lot of buzz. Um, you know, those can be expensive techniques or relatively inexpensive. I've seen people yeah. bootstrap that kind of stuff. Um, and people overspend, but it actually isn't that expensive a technique is to get out there and press the flesh. Right. So right. that's one way to do it hard during the pandemic, obviously, but it, yeah. it, it um, you know, that will come back in yeah. various forms. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a form of growth. That's very exhausting though. <laughs> so it, you know, because you have to, I haven't met anybody who can pull it off without. Um, that's not really true, actually. There's a couple brands I know that just had unbelievable products. And so they created all this word of mouth. And they created very, very high, what they call repeat purchase rates. Um, and if you can get usually a brand that generates like really fanatically higher levels of repeat, like 80% of first time triers buy it again. Wow. That's like super high. Not it yeah. does happen, right? If you get something that high, you usually have a product that is so good competitively that it's going to generate those psycho heavy users I'm talking about who who will start off having like one pack of hummus a week and then three and then four. <laughs> so it's, just, <laughs> um, it's a thing. Yeah. That's crazy. Whether you're a seasoned designer or a total novice, with Visme, you can create engaging, dynamic, branded content that makes people ask, how did you do that? Visit tinyurl.com slash to explore. 
If you're a small business owner or salesperson who struggles with getting the sales results you're looking for, grab a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And if you haven't seen all Audible.com has to offer, you don't know what you're missing. Sign up for a free trial at audibletrial.com slash business growth. So what is over-innovating? So over-innovating is what happens when we, um, in my world, when you think a bit too hard. <laughs> so, and in the amateur context, which is most of the people who, who create a food or beverage, they're not actually from the big companies, right? They're, Mm-hmm. They're, they're David in mm-hmm. the biblical frame. Yeah. They often create something that's super geeky because they're the geek, right? So maybe they're a, a nutrition geek, super into alternative nutrition. They probably are a yoga teacher, you know, someone living mm-hmm. in this interesting, but otherwise marginal world, subculture of America. And they develop a solution or a food that appeals to them. Um, you know, if you were to go to some of the trade shows that are starting to re reopen, but have been around for 20 years in natural products, for example, there's, there's been products with turmeric for like 20 years at those shows. There's all, there's like at least 10 guys with a turmeric something (laughs) Um, uh, is like not new at all. Like in that subculture of alternative medicine, but no one's been able to scale anything with turmeric as sort of the big symbolic ingredient, even when they put it in the brand name, <laughs> because it sounds weird. No one knows how to pronounce it for one. Ah. So most of the problem with over-innovating is that people get it. They get enamored with weird and obscure things, usually ingredients, Diane. And so, oh. and then they might add some more, right? Cause they're like, well, I'm an expert. I'm like, I'm, I'm a naturopath, for example, say that. So I'm, I actually know a lot about supplements. So if I could create a beverage that could have some ashwagandha and some turmeric, and I just pile on the weird after weird after weird. <laughs> and suddenly it's like this inscrutable, it's almost like a textbook in alternative medicine. It's not anything that anybody can understand. Right. So over the classic owner of your innovation is a geeky product made by a geek for themselves. Yeah. And no one can figure it out. It's sort of like the three awful letters after my name. I wrote a 470-page book, essentially, to get those three letters. There aren't that many people in the U.S. who could even understand said book. (laughs) I don't know what use it was. I actually just got an email like six months ago from someone in Germany who found it online. Hallelujah. That's the first person to ever contact. So that's what a dissertation is, right? It's the same thing. Yeah. Like it doesn't mean anything unless you're this tiny group of people who spent years learning a language in which they could make sense of it. So over-innovating often is geekiness that's culturally meaningless to any kind of sizable group that you need to scale like a business. Like if you want to create a $100 million business with the average unit price of three bucks, three to four bucks where I in the world that I'm in, you know, that's, I don't know. 25 to 30 million packages a year. So you're going to have to have an audience of at least one to 2 million people. Right. (laughs) There are not one to 2 million naturopaths 
in the United States, happily ready to have some geeky turmeric drink. <laughs> There's probably 5,000. <laughs> so, you know, which is a lot to your listeners. You're like, really? Yeah, there probably are, but that's not a business. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so you have to innovate something like Dan Lebetsky did, which is say, hey, there's a very simple problem. Every protein bar on the market in the year 2003, when he sat down to come up with this thing, uh, is an extruded slab of fractionated chemicals. And soy was like the number two ingredient in most of them, including Cliff Bar. Right? That's all that they were. <laughs> they were chemistry experiments. Um, some were quote unquote natural because they didn't have artificial flavors, but other, you know, basically it was all chemistry. Yeah. And that's just how they got made. Cause that's how you could make a hundred million bars. Right. <laughs> in a high speed manufacturing setting. Now he had to figure out how do we actually make a bar with kitchen ingredients in a high speed manufacturing environment? Yeah. Right. So now you have a, you have a very simple concept that isn't hard to understand. It's like literally your dumb uncle Larry could understand this. And well, the funny thing uh, yeah, with, kind, but the funny thing with kind bar is that it did well with everybody not just the yoga teachers. Like every, I mean, there really weren't any people who hated it. <laughs> but that wasn't the, but that wasn't the focus, right? I mean, that, that it crossed over into other targets. Right. It had a, it had a long-term, what they call a long-term addressable market that was going to be big because there was no sensory reason not to enjoy a kind bar. It's basically a candy bar, Diane. I mean, it's got a slab of chocolate on the bottom. And then it's got nuts and fruit. It's the healthiest candy. I don't bar. understand how that's a. Well, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a healthier choice than just getting a candy bar. So is well, it's much lower sugar, Diane. It's good. Then a candy bar is probably got a tenth of the sugar. So that dark chocolate layer, it feels good in your mouth, but it's actually not putting a lot of sugar in your body. So actually ah. the, the nutritionals were way ahead of their time, actually, when they launched it. And he didn't even have that agenda. His agenda was like, it was not like some low sugar play, but that's what it ended up becoming. And it's ah. one of the reasons that it took off. So there was a much larger group. There was this group of what I would call somewhat sanctimonious yoga practitioners in urban America who were like, wanted to tell their girlfriends that they paid three fifty for this cool little bar that looks so cute and a beautiful little beer package. Sort of like a Voss water bottle is just sexy to have around, right? That was the initial group. But what actually took, drove this thing was once it got into distribution, more ordinary people flipped it over and realized there was no sugar in it relative uh -huh. to even a cliff bar. And certainly relative to other bars. And it started to gain an audience of folks who wanted to have um, low sugar snacks, but they didn't want to have them full of bad chemicals. And, and that audience is what grew over the life of that business really fast. And that ended up being the really big audience. That's the tens of that, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people are, are at play there. You know, that's a large audience to build a, a substantial business. I mean, now you'll find kind bar dollar store. So it's like literally yeah, become, right. it is, it's literally become a candy bar alternative. Um, okay, but but is that part of how exponential growth happens? That that through innovation, more people. If it turns out that that there's a bigger audience for it, a product. 
what what's going on is usually there is something you could call it the DNA of the original product. And it's usually the sensory experience to some degree, mm. it could be some of the nutritionals, which speaks to multiple audiences, one of them, one of those audiences, preferably is someone who's we might, you know, crudely call a trend setting group, like the yoga people I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Now, they're more trendsetters for Lululemon than food, but I mean, they have done it in food and beverage. So. Um, but if you can have that, what I would call elite appeal to some kind of high-minded group that thinks that your brand is now a discern- is like a new and discerning choice, a modern choice, but you also, the same thing actually has the ability to resonate with a much broader audience later that's actually kind of the secret sauce for design. And I, that's mm. what I help my clients with. Cause sometimes they start off with a geeky thing and it just needs a few tweaks Yeah, and it will be set up to explode later. I see. But my clients as small companies, you don't have the ability, even if you had something like, even if Dan Lebetsky had been handed some brilliant analysis that said, you realize this is like an unbelievable weight management thing. It's like 140 calorie bar with very little sugar. I mean, you should be selling this on Weight Watchers. Right. I mean, he could have tried that if someone had, if it had occurred to him, Sure, but it, it wouldn't have worked because he didn't have the economics in the business to sell it for a buck 50 or a dollar. Oh, <laughs> so part of my book is about how do you, one reason you want exponential growth is you don't act, you don't want to scale too fast because the only way to do that is slash your price and you will go out of business financially as a small business person. <laughs> so you will go like out of business fast. So part of what my book is about is this is a great strategy when you need to keep your price really high at the beginning to survive as a small business. And in my world, people are losing money in the first three or four years. Wow, really? Like to the tune of at least five to 10%. It's painful, right? So they're just trying to get to break even in the first couple of years. And hopefully with a design and a marketing strategy or something that will unleash that exponential growth, but they've got to get over that. I call it the death funnel where it's literally just sucking wind, sputtering. (laughs) And it's something that the big companies don't have to deal with because they, when they do a launch, they just allocate 50 million to it. (laughs) It just just, goes in the budget. It's so easy. (laughs) Well, it's not politically easy, but for them, cash is not the problem. (laughs) so so i wrote the book because it's actually the smartest it wasn't just the the journey of undercapitalized folks like dan lebetsky at kindbar who you know he was not poor but he also didn't have a he didn't start it with 10 million i mean he just didn't you know he he got capital later from investors but yeah you know as with most people you got to prove that there's a there there and the way you do it is you create you create a cash flow efficient, fast turning, fast growing, exponentially growing business. And then suddenly people are like, yeah, I want in. And then the investor cash helps um, fund the growth, but also helps you fund the price, what I call price relaxation, allows you to relax that price. Wow. And, and the weird thing about my industry, it's, and it's fascinating to me because I'm an anthropologist. So I was trained in the study of symbols and meaning, right? And, and that's a lot of what I do, right? Like, How do we find symbols that will attract cool people, but also be ones that can go mainstream later with a bigger audience. That's not so easy, but I would think, but the reality is price is so powerful, like sociologically. 
Yeah. Um, very small changes in price in some categories in the grocery store have enormous effects on sell-through. Uh, huh. Especially if your brand has built some awareness. What ha- so, for example, there are people who they knew they'd seen Kind Bar and they'd had it, but they were they were like, "Oh, I don't, I can't afford that. Right? I can't, I can't keep having that." And so they literally waited, Diane. So no, seriously. And they'd, it, it, it would have been like years of in-store advertising. They'd seen it. They're like, God, oh, it looks really good, but I'm not going to pay $3. And that's usually that larger group. And eventually when you get down to like 250, 225, suddenly they're in. Huh. And so that's part of the strategy too for exponential growth is pacing that pricing so that you're, <laughs> you're high enough to attract the, the most gonzo motivated who usually become heavy users really fast. And then you can finance your price relaxation so that you can get to that next audience who's not as motivated, but they will for, if you just slash the price like 30%, they're in. And then there's another group, the Walmart crowd, you know, if you cut it in half, they're in. (laughs) You have to be able to produce it for far less. uh, Yeah, but you can't just start, you can't, yeah, you just, you can't, when you're a new brand and no one knows you, you can't just show up at like Kroger and slash your price. Right. People don't even know you're there, so it doesn't have an effect. (laughs) So it's this weird, there's all these variables you have to manage. But if you do it intelligently, um, using principles in my book, you can definitely create a winner interesting and what is the power of focus when it comes to entrepreneurs so i mean this may be a more not all your listeners want to create exponential growth i would imagine because it it's perfect you can be perfectly happy as a business person growing geometrically nothing wrong with that the power of focus i think is more broad relevant message for folks. And that is once you've found an offering, whether it's a service or product that is generating profitable cash flow, either growing or, or, you know, steady, um, you need to stay focused uh, on the thing that you know is actually working. So if you can use what they call objective key performance indicators, as a small business person, uh, and my industry has its own, and you know, other industries have their own specific ones. What I often see people do as entrepreneurs is they, because a lot of them are kind of attention challenged, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that if they don't see the growth quick enough in in a otherwise profitable business, yeah, in which they're not doing a couple other things right, like marketing, they'll just launch another service or a product. Yeah. Yeah, so they'll, cha- okay. they'll use innovation to make up for the fact that they didn't actually optimize this otherwise really profitable thing that was working. So you've got to, at some point, look at the KPIs and say, all right, I got to focus on this thing because it's profitable. It has mm-hmm. potential. I've seen evidence that it has potential to grow. And now I've got to work on all the other elements of business strategy. So in my world, we call them the four P's of strategic planning, a price, product, promotion and placement is a very complicated in my world because of retail. Uh, the reality is that if you don't just pick one category, like yogurt, and ruthlessly focus on a limited set of products in, in your brand, in yogurt, you, I guarantee you as an organization, you will not 
be able to, as a small company, focus on those other P's that are necessary to create exponential growth, right? So if you go back to KindBar, KindBar didn't sit there at the beginning and say, oh, wow, we made 2 million in bars. Okay, let's do shakes. Let's do pies. Let's do, you know, they didn't just go crazy. (laughs) They could have done that. They could have easily done that. They probably had people telling them to do that based on what I know about the industry. But they literally stuck to bars for the first like 50 to 75 million, which is six, seven years. And that wow. allowed, by, 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 knowing, by holding the product as a fixed constant, they were able to spend their creative energy optimizing things like the field marketing. How do we get this to the right people? How do we sample right? This all takes time and energy. If you're actually spending all your time launching new things, you'll never optimize anything you launched. Mm, right. And then you will have a self-fulfilling prophecy in which optimization seems like silly. That seems like, that seems stupid. But what generally in my industry, the more products you launch, the slower you grow. <laughs> it, we, I've actually done data science and randomized sets, cash register data, and proven that you will decelerate the more products you launch. Well, it sort of makes sense to me when you say it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I, I gotta say it's tempting though. I mean, I'm in professional services and that's super tempting to create like a, like a vomit web, like a vomit website with 17 ways to buy from me. (laughs) But the problem is when the person goes to the website, they don't know what you do. Yeah. It's like, I don't, so like, if you go to mine, I, I, and I did that, I made that mistake. And then Right before my book came out, I redrafted the website and then basically it's, I do one thing. I help people plan for exponential growth. Now that happens to be, that's very exciting. So <laughs> even though it's narrow, it's very, I don't meet a lot so of people who are the like- the right one the first time out, right? Good for I, you. I, well, I had to figure it out, but I, you gotta be narrow, but you gotta find something that's really enticing. Right? Yeah, yeah. And well, yes, yeah, it's more- gotta be a market for it. Right, so it's more aspirational in my case because not everyone's gonna achieve it. Yeah. Uh, most of my clients do, but but, yeah, um, but they're getting a lot of extra help um, that the average team's not going to have. Right. So yeah, focus is so important, especially in an operationally complex business. If anybody listening is in one and anybody who makes a widget is, <laughs> like, if you, any of you are in manufacturing, you know what I'm talking about. Even a restaurant, yeah. it's the same thing. Restaurants are amazingly complex operationally. Just the yeah. human capital side makes my head hurt. No doubt. <laughs> so, and you are not alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, every time I go through Dairy Queen, I'm like, this is the right model. Yeah. All they sell is one thing, comes out of one machine. Right. You order on one side, you drive around, you pick up. At least yeah. that's how they do it in Arizona because they don't sell food. So Uh (laughs) literally just blizzards all day long. (laughs) How hard can that be? (laughs) Yeah, but that's how you run a focused, profitable business. It's very easy to scale that. Yeah, that's a great point. The problem is a lot of entrepreneurs are creative types. And so to them, it gets boring. And that's when you have to make a decision. It's like, do you want to grow and you want to be more capitalistic and growth oriented? Or do you want to be more creative? Yeah. So be honest with yourself. And there is no wrong answer. Not, not really, but yeah. growth usually requires you to turn off a lot of creativity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. What I always say is you can do anything you want to do. You just can't do it all at the same time. Yep. So, 
That's why parking lots were invented. <laughs> so, well, James, this has been so great. I really, I appreciate the information and the examples, you know, using kind bars as an example is so helpful to, to wrap my head around this. Thank you so much for joining me here. Will oh, you, yeah. um, will you share with the listeners, you know, how they can get your book, how they can find you all that great stuff. Yeah. You can uh, go to rampingyourbrand.com, which is my book site. Uh, and actually, if you go to the show notes and click the link there, there's a special landing page for listeners. Yes. And the day the show launches, it'll be discounted to $9.99 on Amazon. Oh, oh, great. So I'd love for folks to, even if it's not for you, but a friend, um, mm -hmm. love folks to get a copy. You can also download a free excerpt there too. Nice. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I think this was really valuable for the listeners, especially in these days when we need to be innovative, but we also need to understand what works and what doesn't work right. and right where our energy is best spent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Diane. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.